that's always good to know. Let's pray. This morning as we turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer, I want to talk to you about things God will not do. Things God will not do. God, I thank you not only for what you do, but for what you do not do. Lord, what you are desiring is a people that not only apprehend your heart, but understand your ways. It was on the mountain that Moses prayed, teach me your ways that I may walk in your truth. And Lord, we can spend all our time chasing you and never learn how to follow you. But you've called us to follow you, but in order to follow, we have to know your ways. Lord, we know that the heavens are higher than the earth and your ways are higher than our ways. But we also know that as the rain comes down from heaven, so your word comes down from your mouth. And your word reveals your ways, takes us to that higher place so that we can understand your ways and walk in your truth. So grant us your wisdom today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The life of the believer is characterized by three things. The life of the mature believer, that is. First of all, it's characterized by resting. Mature believers learn, have learned how to rest in what God has already done on their behalf. Yeah. Secondly, it's characterized by reaching. Mature believers have learned not only how to rest in what God has done, but to reach for what He has not yet done. And number three, reigning. Mature believers rest in what God has done, reach for what God has not yet done, and walk in what they're supposed to do. So you have to learn how to rest, reach, and reign. Believers who rest where they should be reaching are assuming that God has done something that He hasn't done. Believers that reach where they should be resting are assuming that God hasn't done something that He has done. And believers that reach where they should be reigning are expecting God to do something that He expects them to do. So we have to discern between that which God has done, that which He has not done yet, and that which He expects us to do. Resting, reaching, and reigning, that's what the life of the mature believer should be characterized by. I'm going to give you four principles today that will help us understand things that God will not do. Why is that important? How many here have ever prayed a prayer that God didn't answer? The rest of you have either never prayed or you're lying. If you have ever engaged in the activity we call prayer, you know that God does not answer every prayer, even good ones. You ever prayed and felt it? I mean, you feel it. You feel it. You just feel it, and you know it's done. Why? Because I felt something when I prayed that prayer. And I know it's a real God-ordained, anointed Spirit, Holy Spirit prayer because I felt it. And nothing happened? That ever happened to you before? Is anybody awake this morning? Are you with me? You're going to talk to me? You're going to give me a blank look. (laughs) If you have engaged in prayer for any period of time at all, you know whether you're a believer or unbeliever, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, there are some prayers that God just has not answered, He does not answer. And understanding why is one of the key problems for discernment. 
Because what happens when we go through a season in which we prayed, we sought the Lord, and He has not answered, is we experience disillusionment, we experience discouragement, and we experience despair. And when you're experiencing disillusionment, discouragement, and despair, the first thing that suffers is your prayer life. And the reason we experience dis- disillusionment, discouragement, and despair is because of the reasons that we come up with for why God did not, did not answer. And the reasons typically go something like this. God did not answer my prayer because He does not favor me as much as He favors so-and-so. You ever had somebody else praying for the same thing you were praying for and they got it and you didn't? Now if you put two and two together, it just seems like God loves them more than you. Or, God did not answer my prayer because so-and-so has more faith than me. Faith is important, but it is not the only key to understanding what God will do and what God doesn't do. The first thing we do is we we think it's either God's fault or my fault. It's God's fault if He loves so-and-so more than me. It's my fault if I just didn't have enough faith, or maybe I got sin in my life, or maybe I didn't pray enough, or there's something I did wrong. Those are typically the two categories into which we put our answers. Either I didn't do something right, or God did something wrong. And it's hard for me to actually really believe that God did something wrong, so I tend to take all of the blame on myself. Well, it's my fault. I didn't pray enough. I didn't fast enough. Uh, I tried to fast, but I ate at McDonald's, you know, halfway through the fast. And then I got mad at my wife, and, and, said, and then God just said, forget it. You know, I'm not doing it. I'm going to do it for her, because Vivian prays and believes, and she doesn't quit in her fast, and she never gets mad at her husband. And so that's why... That's, you know, that's why God will answer her, but he won't answer me. You know, the funny thing is, is the people that you think are more spiritual than you, if you were actually to talk to them, they've probably done the same stuff you've done. They probably messed up in the same areas you've messed up. And somehow God answered their prayer and he didn't answer your prayer. But it, it, it enters back into the realm of mystery. If I can't put it in those two categories, why then does God not do some stuff? I'm going to give you four principles that will help us understand that today. Number one. God will not do that which he has already called done. Perhaps he's already done it. You're wasting your time asking him to do what he's already done. Now, of course, a ridiculous uh, example of that is if you were praying for Jesus to come and save the world by dying on the cross. He died once for all, and he does not die again. He ever lives to make intercession for the saints now, but he does not die again. He died for all so that all may live. Right? So that's already done. If you're, you're not asking for another sacrifice for the sin of the world. But how about this one? Revelation chapter 1-6 says that He has loved us and freed us from our sins by His blood. So if you're praying for freedom for sin, you're praying for something that's already been done. John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus is on the cross and He cries out, It is finished, and then breathes His last. When he says it is finished, he means that the price has been paid and the door is open. The sins of the world have been atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now understand something. Your repentance doesn't save you. The blood of Jesus Christ saves you. Repentance is the alignment of the heart and mind with what God already did 2,000 years ago by the cross. Repentance means to change your mind. Remember, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Repentance is part of that believing because it's the turning of the mind away from the way I used to think towards Jesus Christ. Now I believe that Jesus paid it all. 
My believing doesn't save me. My believing brings me into alignment with the saving power that was already there. It's been there for 2,000 years. So whenever somebody gets saved, they didn't just get saved. They're entering into a stream that's been flowing for 2,000 years. But we're, we're constantly praying for God to send the stream. Lord, would you send a stream and wash me of this? Would you send a stream and cleanse? No, 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 no. The stream has been flowing for 2,000 years. You just got to begin to believe it. Jesus said it's finished. It's done. Now, when he said it's finished, he didn't mean everything's finished. I mean, there's stuff that's still in process. Hello? I mean, there's stuff that's still happening. The world is still subject to decay. And creation is still longing for the revelation of the sons of God. It's still longing for its freedom from decay. Right? The laws of thermodynamics are still happening. It's still going down. And the Spirit is still in the process of bringing creation to its final point of renewal. The kingdom is going to come, and His will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're still waiting for that, and so that's why we pray, Come, Lord Jesus. We pray for the coming of the kingdom of God. That's not done yet, but when we begin to pray for things that God has already done, God can't do again what He's already done. He doesn't like repeating Himself, and He doesn't like repeating his actions he just refuses to do it and so sometimes when god is silent with you it's because he's already spoken so he will not do again what he has already done ephesians 1 3 says he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places it's already done so if we're crying out for the blessings of the spirit instead of bringing our hearts and minds into alignment with the fact that we are blessed. Here's the hardest thing as a believer is when God tells you you have something that you don't think you have. It's kind of like the angel of the Lord appearing to Gideon in the in the wine press and saying, "Greetings mighty warrior." And he goes, "Mighty warrior. Uh, no, you're looking at a punk, not a mighty warrior." I'm such a mighty warrior that I'm hiding out in the wine press threshing wheat and God's saying, "No, no, no, you're already a mighty warrior. You just don't see that you have mightiness and warriorness." But I see what you don't see. Do you know that God sees the you that you don't see? And he sees that you have what you don't see that you have. It's just about believing that you have what God says you have. Joel Osteen says it right. This is my Bible. I have what it says I have. I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. Amen? we got to begin to believe that. Don't ask God to defeat the devil again. We're praying all the Lord, defeat the devil. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed powers and principalities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. If God was to defeat the devil again, Jesus would have to come back down to earth and be, be hung on a cross again. Because it was the cross that was his final victory over the devil. He's already disarmed powers and principalities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. But you say, Ephesians chapter 6 says that we wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, and against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Right? That's spiritual warfare, right? Yes, it is spiritual warfare. But the point of spiritual warfare is to fight the good fight of faith. Meaning you are fighting to believe. Yes, the devil is arrayed against you, but what he is aimed at is your faith. You say, the devil's fighting my finances. No, he's not. He's fighting your faith. The devil's fighting my family. No, he's not. He's fighting your faith. If he can get to your faith through your family, he'll hit your family. If he can get to your faith through your finances, he'll hit your finances. But if he knows that your faith is not moving, the only thing he wants is your faith, because your faith is the victory that overcomes the world. 
So really what we're fighting is for faith. 2 Corinthians one twenty one says he has anointed us in God. He's already anointed us. Meaning he has placed the Holy Spirit on each and every one of us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been anointed in God. One of the biggest lies of the devil that comes against you is you're not spiritual enough. There's this divide between the spiritual and the non-spiritual. This divide that we think, well, I'm just not spiritual. He's, you know why we don't act spiritually? Because we don't think that we are spiritual. And we, we have this, in, a lot of believers have this spiritual inferiority complex. Everybody else's spirituality is greater than mine. You know, there's, first of all, there's something human about that. Because when you're, there's always a human tendency to think everybody else around you is at a greater place than you are. To feel like I'm further behind than everybody else. But everybody else is thinking you're further ahead than them. I remember my last year in my Ph.D. program, the last course I took, I thought I was the dumbest person in the room. I, I mean, there were 31 people in our cohort, and I thought I was the dumbest of all of them. I literally, I, I mean, I really thought that everybody else in the room had forgotten more than I ever knew. But on the last day of the last course in our coursework, the professor had everybody in the room just say a, a word of encouragement to somebody else in the room. Nobody can get it twice, so everybody had to get something. And the guy, one of the smartest guys in the room, said to me, I've learned so much from you. Every time you open your mouth, I grab my pen to take notes because it's something insightful. And I thought, you learned from me? Are you kidding me? Dude, I mean, like, you, you forgot more than I'll ever know. Right? You know, the same people that you think are just worlds ahead of you are looking at you thinking, man, if I could only be where he is. You've got to drop the inferiority complex. He's already anointed us in God. He's anointed us. Now just begin to lay hold of the anointing that is upon your life right now. The problem is believers are constantly crying out for more anointing, but you've never used the anointing you've got. We actually have more than enough anointing. There's enough anointing on us to fry us like catfish, but we won't use any of it. we got believers crying out for the gift of healing who have never prayed for the sick. Crying out for the gift of evangelism who refuse to share the gospel. We're crying, but we're not using what we've got. And so instead of crying out for more and walking around feeling empty and feeling dry and feeling useless and feeling, feeling like we've got nothing, wake up and recognize that He has anointed you in God, that He's put His Spirit on you, and there's power in you. Amen. God will not do that which he has already called done. Now, corollary to that is God will not do that which he has delegated to us, placed under our authority, and made our responsibility. He won't do what he expects you to do. He will not do that which he has delegated to us, placed under our authority, and made our responsibility. If he's delegated to us, he does not intend to do it. In other words... He will not do for you that which he expects you to do for yourself. Now, the skit gave us a piece of that, didn't it? He will not take from us that which, he that which he requires us to give to him. So many of us are holding on to something and going, God, take it from me. You have the power to. He says, yes, but I've delegated the responsibility to you. And I've delegated the authority to you to deliver to me what's in your hand. Moses, what's that in your hand? It's a stick. I want that stick. Throw it down. Moses had a choice at that moment to either hold on to his stick or to give it to the Lord. It becomes the rod of God once you deliver it to him. Yeah. He will not take from us that which he 
requires us to give to him. Secondly, he will not utilize the nat- he will not utilize the supernatural to circumvent our failure to use the natural. God will not utilize the supernatural to circumvent our failure to use the natural. My wife was in Paraguay. She got up at 5 o'clock in the morning. She went out on the balcony to pray. And she got out there and realized it was freezing cold. And the first prayer she prayed was, Oh, Lord, supernaturally make me warm. And all of a sudden the glory of God came and the presence of God came. And she knew God was going to speak. And she said, Yes, Father. And God spoke and said, Go get a blanket. like the Lord just throws a cold glass of water in your face. And she said, the Lord spoke to her and said, before you ask for my supernatural blessings, learn to utilize my natural blessings. They're all blessings from God. There is a distinction between the natural and the supernatural that is completely inappropriate. Why? Because even the natural has a supernatural source. The earth is not natural. It came into being because God said, let there be, and there was. That is supernatural. So that means that sometimes God will supernaturally tell you to go to the store and buy an aspirin when you have a headache instead of healing you of that headache. Instead of laying hands, just, you know, I mean, you got, you got it right there in the cabinet. Now, in the early Pentecostal movement, that was considered unbelief. That is not unbelief. I'm utilizing the natural blessings that God has given me. He's placed them at my disposal. And if I got to go to the doctor, I'm going to pray all the way to the doctor. God might use the right hand, he might use the left hand, but either way, it's the hand of God. All healing comes from the Lord. Amen. So he will not use the natural to circumvent our failure. He will not use the supernatural to circumvent our failure to use the natural. You know, people get in trouble with this in the area of giving because I give my tithe and I think that means that God's going to bless me tenfold, hundredfold, a thousandfold, right? And so that means it gives me the freedom to go out and just spend my money foolishly. And then when I'm broke and I'm in debt and everything's falling around, apart around me financially, then I start questioning the Lord. You know, Lord, what happened? You said that you would bless me. What happened? He's saying, no, 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 no. I said I would bless you, but I still expect you to use a little common sense. Remember Dr. Kirby talked about the 10th gift of the Holy Spirit, common sense? I told somebody yesterday, I got the 11th gift of the Spirit, exaggeration. I use it to magnify the Lord. <laughs> God will not do that which he has delegated to us, placed under our authority, and made our responsibility. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Jesus said, you go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You go. God is not going to preach the gospel for us. He did not say, go and have a prayer meeting and wait for me to save the world. He did not say, mention the, the nations in your services, and that will be enough. He said, go. If the disciples of Jesus do not go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, the nations will not be disciples. Now, He will bless and empower our obedience to that commission, but He will not do it for us. You see, in the book of Acts chapter 10, Cornelius was this God-fearing man, but he was a Roman centurion. He was a soldier. And he prayed every day, three times a day he prayed, and he gave alms to the poor, and the Lord really, really wanted to save him. So he sent an angel to him, and the angel did not preach the gospel to him. But the angel said, go and find Peter and listen to whatever he tells you. 
Peter still had to come down from the roof, journey to the city where the man lived, and go into his house and preach the gospel before they got saved. But they were so ready to be saved. Do you know there are people around you that are so ready? we got believers praying for the family members but never sharing the gospel with them. I'm praying God save my uncle. Yeah, pray for your uncle and then call him. I just want God to do it all without me, and it doesn't work that way. Carl Hargistam tells about a time when the Lord told him to go to the Guji tribe in Ethiopia. You remember that? Remember that story, the Guji, Guji people? Everybody told him, do not go to the Guji tribe. Why? Because the Guji tribe had killed every missionary that had come to them prior to Carl's visit. Every missionary they'd killed, and you did not want to get killed by the Guji people. Now, there are some ways to die that are worse than others, because the Guji people, they would cut off your package. And let you bleed out. Yeah, no, that's no joke. The Lord would have to appear to me, you know. uh, I'm not fooling with no Guji people, right? (laughs) So the Lord speaks to Carl and says, fly your helicopter in there and preach the gospel to the Guji tribe. And everybody told him, don't go, Carl, don't go, don't go. He said, no, the Lord told me to. He flies in there, he lands his helicopter, he gets out of the helicopter, and everybody, the whole tribe comes, he has a translator with him, he starts preaching the gospel to the Guji people. Everybody is captivated. Fifteen minutes into his speech, now Carl, he's got his Bible uh, story method, he starts with Genesis. In the middle of his Genesis thing, the chief, the chief of the tribe stands up and says, tell us about Jesus Christ. Carl says, wait, wait, hold up. Y'all have killed every missionary that came up in here. Did one of them say, Jesus Christ? <laughs> you know, I'm like, what? <laughs> How do you know about Jesus Christ? And he said, uh, five days ago, a shiny man appeared to me. And the shiny man said, in five days, white men will fly down out of the sky. And you must hear what they say to you. And I asked the shiny man, what is your name? And he said, my name is Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to this chief but did not preach the gospel to him. In order to be saved, Carl had to show up. What if Carl hadn't come? Evangelizing the world will not be done by angels. And the church in America, what do we want to do? This is, this is a responsibility that the American church has very largely abdicated very largely abdicated this responsibility. We think, we'll just pray for the unreached people groups of the world. We'll just pray for them. But God will not do that which He has delegated to us, placed under our authority, and made our responsibility. He just won't do it if He expects us to do it. And so it's time for the church to just wake up and say, we've got a responsibility here, and praying ain't doing it. Wow. Wow. Oh, this is a good one. Ephesians 4.28, he expects us to work. (laughs) He expects us to work. Let him who steals, steal no longer. Instead, let him work with his hands to do that which is good. Let him work with his hands to do that which is good. You know, I, I I had a friend who just told me, the Lord told me not to work. The Lord just told me not to work. I said, really? Okay, so what ministry is the Lord calling you? No, no, no. He just told me not to work. But, okay, so, I mean, are you going to be evangelizing every day? No, 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 no. The Lord just told me not to work. 
somehow the Lord had called this guy to watch uh, 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 Jerry Springer and Oprah every day. That was his calling. And the Lord said, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. I'm not doing nothing with my time. Now, I'm not saying it's a sin to be unemployed. God forbid that I should, be, I should come across in that way. Listen, that we are in a, in a recession right now. Folks are losing their jobs and looking for jobs and having a hard time uh, you know, finding jobs, and it's, it's a tough place. Neither am I saying that it's wrong not to be working a job that pays you a certain amount of money. That's not what I mean. Sometimes God will call you to a ministry that's just not lucrative. So I said, you preachers just want our money. I said, man, if I wanted money, I'd be doing something else. <laughs> there are other ways to make money and make a heck of a lot more of it. You know what happens if you're called to serve God? You'll turn down a lot of money-making opportunities to be faithful to the call of God on your life. It's not about money, but it's about working. If you are unemployed, see it as an opportunity to be working for the Lord. So God just wants me to rest. Okay, maybe for a couple weeks. <laughs> maybe in a month if you had a real hard season and you were working really, really hard, but, but then get up and keep going. Do something. You say, well, I'm unemployed. I don't know what to do. Get up every morning, take your shower, get dressed, put on your slacks and your dress shirt at 9 a.m. and say, Lord, I'm working for you. I'm showing up at the office. What do you want me to do? Get on your knees and pray. Here's the thing. How about this? Until you know what to do, pray for four hours a day. See, because when you were working, you had an excuse not to be praying. You say, oh, I'm so busy. I just wish I could spend time with the Lord. I was, I was working. I'm just working. You know, I got so many stuff. I was just... Now you ain't got no excuse. Now you have to face the fact that you just don't want to. You know, John Wimber, people used to come to him all the time asking for him to lay hands and impart the anointing to heal the sick to them. And they'd come and say, you know, I, I want to do healing ministry. Would you lay your hands? He'd say, nope, go pray for a thousand sick people and then come back and talk to me. Because nothing will stimulate the anointing to heal the sick than praying for the sick. You want to learn how to pray for the sick? You've got to pray for the sick. So after you've prayed for a thousand sick people, come back and talk to me. Then maybe I'll lay hands on you. Don't call me for direction until you've prayed 20 hours on it. <laughs> Email me. <laughs> I'll pray with you. <laughs> the fact of the matter is God will direct you. I'm telling you, God will direct you. I'm telling you, God will direct you. One of the hardest things to believe is that when we are in a quandary and, and life is changing and we sense a transition coming, we're afraid God's not going to direct us. I'm telling you, God will direct you. And it doesn't matter how deep. You know, my wife and I were in a situation a couple of months ago where the finances weren't coming in and the bills were more than the money that was coming in. And I spent an evening in prayer and I said, God, will you tell me what to do with our finances? Tell me what to do with our finances. Tell me what to do. And all of a sudden, the Lord gave me a pattern. He said, here's the pattern. I want you to do it exactly this way. I mean, he gave me the percentages, down to the percentages. And the first thing he told me to do was double my giving. Now, sometimes the Lord don't make no sense. Sometimes you feel like he needs a math course. But his ways are perfect. 
What we're talking about is discerning his ways. You see? And so going up, Exodus 25, God took Moses up to the mountain. He gave him the plan for the tabernacle. And he said, see to it that you build it exactly according to the pattern that I gave you on the mountain. Listen, when you, listen if you are unemployed right now, this is a great opportunity. Wonderful opportunity. What a great opportunity. Especially if you didn't do it, create it yourself. Now, if you just quit, you know. <laughs> don't, quit, don't quit in the middle of a recession. You better be thankful for that job. That's divine provision. Let God move you. But here, here's, the, here's, the th- here's the thing I'm saying. Use every opportunity to seek the Lord in an increased measure that you can get. If God gives you some time off, get, I mean, get on your knees and pray and seek the face of God until he opens the windows of heaven. And I guarantee you, God will speak to you. God will speak to you. He will make it clear. He will give you the pattern. All we need is a word from God. I don't care what the struggle is. I don't care what the situation is. When we have a word from God and we have clarity from heaven, we can walk through anything. Amen. Amen. That's powerful. God will not do that which he has de- uh, delegated to us, placed under our authority, and made our responsibility. Number three, God will not do that which he has determined not to do. God loves you. He wants to give you the world. No good thing will he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But he's still sovereign, and there's, he still says no sometimes. And when he says no, it's no. Now, I love my daughter. I would give her the world. My wife and I love our daughter. The thing when you've waited eight years for a child to come, you know, it's a little dangerous because, you know, you want to just give that child everything. And my wife, I see this look in my wife's eyes when she sees my daughter, and I feel it when I see my daughter. There's just this intense love. We would give her the world, but sometimes the answer is no. And there's no explanation, you know, and she screams. Sometimes when she doesn't get her way, she screams. She screams bloody murder like somebody is doing something terrible to her. And we're just driving and smiling and thinking, you're just going to have to learn to deal with it because the answer is no. I don't, you can scream all you want. The answer is no. You know, there are certain things that God, you come before God and the answer is just no. No amount of crying about it, pouting about it, screaming about it. You can fast until you're 98 pounds. <laughs> you know, you can speak in every kind of tongue. <laughs> the answer is no. There are some things that God has just determined he ain't going to do. And if you can discern what those things are, and, and don't try to press through God's no, it's for your own good. When we say no to our daughter, it's not because we don't like her, it's not because she's not spiritual enough, not because she's not obedient enough, not because we favor somebody else more than her or all of this stuff. When we say no to our daughter, it's just not good for you. It's just not Good. It's detrimental to you. We should be thanking God when he says no. So God will not do that which he has determined not to do. Now, there's, there's a side to this. Luke 22, 42 to 43, Jesus discerned it in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, when, when Jesus wanted something with the Father, often he just commanded it to happen. Because he just sensed the power of the Father on him to do it. Lazarus, come out. He said in John 5, as the Father has life in himself, the Son has life in himself. The Father gives life to the dead, the Son gives life to the dead. The Father calls those things which are not as though they were, so does the Son. I do what I see the Father doing. Me and the Father, we're one. We're like this. So when he, sent, when he, when he wanted the Father to do something, often he would just command it. 
Storm, shut up. Be still. And everything's calm. Fish, get in the net. Eyes open. Stretch out your hand. He's healed. Everywhere. But here in the garden, Jesus doesn't command the thing before him to move, and we know it to be the cross. And he knew it to be the cross. He knew he was standing before the cross, and he knew that he was not supposed to command it to move. He knew that he was not supposed to lay hands on it. He knew that he wasn't supposed to spit on it. He knew that he simply had to embrace it, but he prayed this last prayer. Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. Now this passage of Scripture has been grossly misinterpreted by those who want to use it to teach us that God actually doesn't do nothing. <laughs> you can't believe Him for nothing. Can't believe Him for healing. Can't believe Him for miracles. Can't believe it just is His will. And that's kind of a, a rationalization for a powerless life in which God does absolutely nothing. Well, it's according to your will. According to your will. Uh, well, he's told us that his will is as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's no sickness in heaven. That means sickness is not God's will. So if you're sick, I'm not going to pray, Lord, let your will be done. I'm going to pray, Lord, heal him. I know it's your will. Why? Because there's no sickness in heaven. Timing, we're going to have to talk about that in a moment. It might not be God's time to heal him, but I know it's God's will to heal him. We're going to talk about that. But Jesus knew that he was facing the cross. God will not remove your responsibility to carry the cross. He will not use supernatural power to circumvent your call to carry the cross. Now, sometimes we call the wrong thing the cross. But that doesn't mean that there's no cross. There is a cross, and you're going to carry it. And you're going to carry it every day. Sometimes your cross... It's a call to love somebody that gets on your last nerve. Sometimes your cross is taking the punishment for something that you didn't do. Sometimes the cross is suffering humiliation for the sake of the gospel. In that moment, do you deliver yourself from humiliation? Or do you stand boldly to be a witness for Jesus? He will not deliver you from the cross. He expects you to carry it. Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass. But nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. And then he backed off. And in the very next verse it says, then an angel came and strengthened him. God didn't remove the cross, but God strengthened him to endure it. Sometimes you're standing before a situation that you would rather not walk through and you say, God, would you deliver me from this situation? And sometimes God says, no, I'm not. You're destined to walk through this. I'm going to get glory for this. I'm going to use what you're getting ready to walk through to bless my people and set them free. I'm not delivering you from it. You're going to walk through it. But here's what I'm doing. I'm sending a messenger to strengthen you. I'm sending an angel of the Lord to stand next to you and strengthen you. I'm going to strengthen you to walk through it. That's what Isaiah said. When you walk through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the waters, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. He didn't say he was removing the rivers and the waters and the fires, but he said, when you walk through it, I'll be right there. Another passage of Scripture that's been grossly misinterpreted by those that would seek to convince us that God doesn't actually do anything miraculous is Paul's thorn in the flesh. Yeah. 2 Corinthians 12.9 
But the other side of it is that those of us who believe in the supernatural working of God have often thrown this passage out. As if it means nothing to us. The fact of the matter is, Paul prayed three times, he said, for God to remove the thorn from his flesh. He prayed three times. Now when it says Paul prayed three times, it means something different than we, when we pray three times. Most believers can pray three times in three minutes. When Paul says, I prayed three times, it wasn't, Lord, please. No? Lord, please. No? Lord, please. No? Yeah, God's not going to do it. Most believers can get... We, we know exactly what God will not do within about 30 seconds. Because that's about as far as our faith reaches. Before we just quit. I guess it's a thorn in the flesh. <laughs> guess I just got to endure it for life. Because I tried for 30 seconds and it didn't break. When Paul says he prayed three times, it means he went through extended periods of fasting and prayer on three occasions. Three times he came to the end of his rope with this thing and said, I'm going in my prayer closet and I'm not coming out till this thing breaks off my life. Three times and each time the Lord gave him the same answer. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. I'm not taking away this weakness, Paul. But I'm giving you grace. I have determined not to remove it from you. And you can fast and pray all you want. I'm not doing it. But what I'm going to do is strengthen you through it. Strengthen you. And on the other side of that strengthening of grace, Paul said, I now rejoice in it. I used to cry about it and ask God to remove it. Now I rejoice in it. Listen, if there is something that God is, if there is a cross that God is expecting you to carry, pray until you're strengthened by the grace of it. It's said of Christ in Hebrews chapter 12, He endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him. The grace of God comes to set joy before you and say, you can endure this by the power of the Holy Spirit for the joy that is set before you. Are you hearing me? Amen. And finally, number four, God will not do now that which he has determined to do later. Some, some stuff, it's a yes, but not now. I'm going to do it, but not in your time frame. And we think our time frame is everything, don't we? If God doesn't do it right now, the world is going to end. God's later means what he is doing right now is strengthening your faith. It means your faith isn't strong enough yet. And, it, and if your faith isn't strong enough yet, it means that the trial has not had its intended effect on your life yet. So you're not ready to come out of it yet. Stay right there. No, but God, I can't handle this anymore. No, God knows how much you can handle. He knows how to infuse you with the right amount of strength to make it through the trial for as long as it takes to make it through it. Elijah had to journey 40 days and 40 nights to arrive at the mountain of the Lord, and the angel knew exactly how much bread and water he needed to eat to make the journey. Sometimes it's a later. It's not a now, and it's not a no. It's a later. You know, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, uh, the disciples are standing with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And uh, he tells them about the end of the age, and they say, Lord, at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And Jesus says in verse 6, it's not for you to know. Look at your neighbor and say, it's not for you to know. I don't care how prophetic you are. I don't care how many dreams, visions, revelations, and interpretations you get. There's some stuff it's just not for you to know. I don't care how many mountaintops you've been to. I don't care if the Shekinah glory has visited your room in a, in a cloud. God will tell you some stuff, but he won't tell you everything. There's information in the kingdom is on a need-to-know basis. Jesus said, you don't need to know this. There's a lot you will know. I'm going to reveal to you the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but the times and the seasons that the Father has set in his own power, it's not for you to know. It's not your concern. Don't be worried about that. That's grown folks' business. It's not for you to know. It's not now. When you need to know, God will let you know. You find yourself in a quandary where you say, I just need to know, I need to know, I need to know, but God's not telling me. Then you don't need to know yet. What do you do? You keep seeking and you keep waiting and you keep watching and you, keep, you stay open and you stay alert. You stay self-controlled. You stay sober because I know at any moment God's going to break through. He's going to give me the information I need. He's going to give me the breakthrough I need. When you stop believing that, God might have come, spoken, and left and you never heard it because you were sleeping. Yes, Dell. Oh, I thought you had a question. <laughs> God's laters are always for later glory. Yeah. Now, now here's the thing. You, got, you have to be careful not to steal somebody else's thunder. God will not allow you to steal the thunder of one of his other kids. Stuff that he's assigned David to do, he's not going to let Joseph do. And stuff that he's assigned Joseph to do, he's not going to let David do. So if David is busy trying to do something that God has ordained for Joseph to do, God just shuts the windows of heaven and says, it's a later and it's a not you. That's not chose. Acts chapter 3, G, uh, the, the, Peter and John are walking into the gate beautiful to pray. There's a man lame from his mother's womb, which means he's been there for decades which means Jesus walked by him every day. The man looks up at Peter and John asking for alms. Peter says, I don't have any silver, I ain't got no gold, but I do have something for you today. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. Now we, we read that and we think it means anybody, we speak the words, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, it's supposed to happen. Jesus, the name Jesus has become a, a Christian ma magic spell. In Jesus' name, something's supposed to happen. It ain't your time, it ain't your season, it's not your place, and that was not delegated to you, but you're trying to work that work. But you walk past ten works that were delegated to you because you ain't got no discernment. You don't know that God wants you to do that right now. Jesus walks past this man at the gate beautiful, day after day after day. day and, Jesus, and the man probably asked Jesus many times to heal him. I mean, he had heard how Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead and cleansed the lepers and made the lame to walk and the blind to see. And all. He had heard these stories, and Jesus walks past him all the time. Jesus doesn't even look down at him. I, could just, I just imagine Jesus walking into the temple, seeing him in, in his periphery, and just smiling. You know why he's smiling? Because he sees a day coming when John and Peter are going to walk in the temple and start a revival because of that healing right there. And he wasn't about to steal Peter and John's thunder. He knew that the Father had given him many works to work, but this was not one of them. That's why he went into the gate beautiful. He went into the pools of Bethesda, and he, hurt, he healed one man. 
He knew that the Father had given him one work to do that day. Listen, discerning the works that the Father has given you to work. Man, we would have had, we would have had a whole prayer line around that man. You know, we would have had ten people praying and trying to make him stand up and walk instead of discerning the will of the Father and the time of the Father and, and the work of the, what is the... What is the Father calling us to do and what work has He delegated to me in the now? Sometimes... I lay hands on somebody and they don't get healed because somebody else is supposed to lay hands on them. And it doesn't mean that other person's more spiritual than I am. And when I lay hands on somebody's healed, it doesn't mean I'm more spiritual than anybody else. It simply means that before the foundation of the world, this is one of the works that God himself ordained for me to walk in, but he's got a book of works that he's ordained for you to walk in. And discerning those works and knowing, you know, I'll never forget, I was, uh, I was at home one day, we were living in Dublin in our apartment, I had a pair of slacks that I had bought from Men's Warehouse that I had blown out. Remember, I, I went through this season where I used to blow out slacks, like, <laughs> bend over to pick something up, pow! And so I had this, I had this pair of slacks that I had just, I had, you know. But this one, this one was, was mendable because it was just the seam. I've had a few that I just exploded and shredded back there. I mean, they just... <laughs> the wound is incurable. But uh, this pair of slacks, I burst the seam, and I had them hanging in my closet, and I kept saying, I need to take them back, I need because I knew Men's Warehouse would sew them up, you know. I need to take them back, I need to take them back, and months went by because I got the gift of procrastination. Not only the gift of exaggeration, I got the gift of pro procrastination as well, and that's very strong, heavy anointing that rests on my life. <laughs> and, uh, but one day, one afternoon, it was a Saturday afternoon, I had this overwhelming desire to take those pants back to the Men's Warehouse. Overwhelming desire just hit me. Take those pants right now. So I grabbed them, jumped in my car, drove to the... To, to Stone Ridge Mall, ran into the men's warehouse, dropped off the slacks, and as I'm walking out, I take two steps out the front door, I hear these two boys sitting over here, and one of them said, I'm sick of people talking to me about the Bible. Those guys in the Old Testament were sleeping with their sisters anyway. I went. I walked over there, I said, hey guys, how you doing? And the one of them had said that, he said, what do you want? And the other guy said, hi, how are you? I said, I'm doing good, can I talk to you guys for a second? And before the guy... The, the guy who said that was about to say, no, we don't want to talk to you. The other guy said, sure. I said, well, it sounds like you guys are talking about the Bible. Yeah. Started up this conversation within 30 minutes. Both of them took my hands and asked Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. But what happened there? Was it because I know how to evangelize? Or is it because God had ordained that moment? He saw those two boys sitting there and he said, go take your slacks Take your slacks in there right now. And as I came out of the door, I literally felt an anointing of the Holy Spirit come on me for those two boys. I just felt it come on me at that moment. I knew it was that moment, that season, that God had ordained that for me. That was the work that he had written in his book, and he saw it coming down. And you know, God has works that he can't wait to see you walk in. He's like, oh, this is the day. Holy Spirit, this is the day. Jesus, this is the day. Watch this, watch this. He's got three hours and 22 minutes and 40 seconds left. He's going to hit that work. The question is, do we live with that eagerness? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we live with that anticipation about discerning his ways yeah. and walking in his ways? Yeah. God will not do now that which he has determined to do later. Yeah. So we have to understand these four principles. Number one, God will not do that which he has already called done. Number two, God will not do that which he has delegated to us, placed under our authority or made our responsibility. Number three, God will not do that which he has determined not to do. And number four, God will not do now that which he has determined to do later. 
when we don't get a positive response from God, we need to discern which of these four it is. And we can get it wrong. God could be saying later, and we'd say, oh, this is one of those things that God's just not going to do. We could be saying now, and God could be saying, no, um, I expect you to do it. We have to discern, is it already done? Does God expect me to do it? Will God just not do it at all, or will he do it later? The process of discernment, that becomes the subject of our prayer. But first and foremost, as these principles are solidly implanted in our minds, what they do is they oust out all of that extra stuff. The devil will give you his reasons and his interpretations why God is not moving on your, ha- on your behalf. It's because you ain't got no faith. It's because you're walking in unbelief. It's because you got sin in your life. It's because you messed up. It's because you haven't been a Christian long enough. You haven't read enough of the Bible. You haven't memorized enough scripture. You haven't loved your neighbor very well. You don't give your tithe. The devil will give you all kinds of reasons why God is not breaking through on your behalf, and none of them are actually biblical. But they're plausible, and so we buy them. But the process of discernment sets us free from discouragement. And it sets us free from disillusionment. And there are many of you in the room right now that you are struggling with disillusionment and discouragement because you went through at least one season in your life of intensively seeking the face of God and God did not come through in the way you expected Him to come through. I talked to a guy one time. He said, I fasted for 40 days, just water, and expected God to break through in powerful and marvelous ways and nothing happened in my life. And so he began to live a lukewarm Christian life. Why? Because he had no discipline? No, because he had no encouragement. Many of you here think you just don't have any spiritual discipline, and the problem is not that you're undisciplined, but that you're discouraged. And God wants to heal your discouragement. He wants to heal your disillusionment. He wants to touch that broken place in your life where you're afraid to jump in the waters of faith, like my wife was talking about earlier. You're afraid to jump in those waters because it looks dangerous. Because if I can't handle another disappointment, I just can't handle it. If I seek God and He doesn't do it, I can't handle it again. I can't go through that again. And so I need to stay in the safe place. And the safest place to be is just to live a moral life and to memorize a few scriptures and to sing some worship songs. I'll come so close, Lord, but I'll draw the line in the sand and say, I won't come any closer because it gets dangerous. This morning, the word of the Lord is coming to set you free. It's coming to heal you. And I just sense that there's so much disillusionment and discouragement in this room because many of us have been hurt. We've been broken in the past. But the scripture says that he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And the scripture says, and many in this room have sought forgiveness and repentance for that for which you need healing. Really underneath it is a hurt that needs to be healed, not something that needs to be repented of or a sin that needs to be forsaken, but a hurt and a wound that needs to be covered up and needs to be closed up. And today God wants to come and pour out the balm of Gilead. He wants to come and pour out the balm of Gilead to heal those broken places, to bind up your wounds. And to authorize you to begin to believe again. To authorize you to begin to pursue again. To authorize you to begin to seek the face of God again. Because mark my words, we are entering into a season and we've already, it's already begun today. In which God is making available to us the things that we have cried out to for years. Some of us even for decades have cried out to God to do the things that He is about to do in this season. But He requires us to enter into it by faith. He requires us to step back up to the plate and begin to believe again, to rise up to that place of belief again and say, no, God, I know it didn't work a thousand times before, but I'm going to do it again. I know it, I know it failed 250 times before, but this is 251st, and it's going to work today. I'm believing you, God. I'm believing you, God. I'm standing in faith believing.
The word of the Lord is coming to heal right now. Let's just bow our heads. Thank you. Father, I pray right now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that your word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would begin to remove barriers in every heart and every mind. Lord, you're removing disillusionment. You're removing fear. You're removing unbelief. You haven't come to shame anyone. You haven't come to beat down anyone. But you've come to heal a lot of people. Some in this room and that have been crying out in their hearts, God, why can't I seek you? Every time I try to pray, it's like this wall I can't break through. Why can't I pray? I'm having so much trouble believing. I wish I could believe. I want to believe. I wish I could be spiritual like other people I see that just seek the face of God. But for some reason, I just can't. But the word of the Lord is coming to you today, and the Lord is saying to you, I've chosen you, and I've set you apart. I'm leading you through this valley. I'm taking you out, and I'm taking you up to a mountaintop. And the word of the Lord, knowing where you are today, gave me this word. I preached at the ark last night a completely different message. Why? Because God had a special word for you. He had a special word for the ark last night, and he had a special word for living hope this morning. Wherever you are, whatever you've experienced, God knows it. God knows it, but the Lord wants you to know today that he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. I know some stuff hasn't worked, and you don't understand why. Even with these four principles, there's still an area called mystery. Stuff that these principles can't even explain. The revealed things belong to us, but the secret things belong to the Lord. And there are secret things that He just hasn't made known. But I want you to know today that the one thing that is revealed is that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. 